On this episode, we're a hard pod for dead. We cure our New York fever by taking a little ride on Dub 56 with the Toasters. It's part two on Checkered Past, the Scodcast. What up, Checkerheads? Welcome to Checkered Past, the Scodcast with Slynn and Rob. The show where I buckle in for this one. I forgot I wrote this. Okay. The show where a New York Times bomb, a.k.a. the old black and white lady, and a Scoshington Toast, a.k.a. Scotto, explore the history and impact of a different band each episode. Hope to bring in new fans along the way. I, I need to quit. I'm Rob, and this is my co-host for today, Joey. You know Engineer what? Joey. I know that Slynn... Usually, kind of whether she half gets it or not is like, what was that? Let's go through it. But I really need you to go through okay. that. What the fuck? New York Times. This was about uh, uh, newspapers. <laughs> okay. New yeah. York Times bomb. Yeah. Yeah. AKA the old black and white lady, because that's what it's called. The old. Is it really? The old gray lady. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, then I said Scoshington Toast instead of Washington, Washington Post. Toast. Yep. Okay. Yeah. A.K.A. Scotto, because they call it WAPO, Washington Post. <laughs> wow. Woof. I'm I'm not thrilled. Whew. I'm not thrilled. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was not great. <laughs> oh, all right. So for those uh, tuning in, Lynn's not with us today. Again, she's still knee-deep in New Salon territory. Um, we are approaching the finish line of New Salon territory. Yes, by the time you hear this out, this record, recording, 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 recording. Um, <laughs> um, the salon will likely have been open for nearly a month. Nice. So it, we're just about there. It's yeah. happening this week. She will return. She Selin will, will return. return. Yes. Um, and actually, if you listen to Heptember, she would have been all those episodes. So you might not have even noticed a difference. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, let's pick it up where we left off. El Hoey. Not anymore. Which, I know. Pick it up, pick it up. Where we left off, pick it up, pick it up. Where we left off. We're recording this before we recorded the Heptember finals also. Yes. So, we're doing oh, that so, next I'm, week. so I'm temporarily not El Hoey. Yeah. Okay. But it'll be El Hoey again next week. But, yes. as, but whoa, what a finals we did, Joey. Wow. wow I can't believe the song was selected <laughs> as the winner. I can believe it because I chose that song. Maybe <laughs> we all voted it. Uh, you know, this is what we should talk about. Um, Saturday. Cause this is Monday. We're recording. Yes. Labor day. This is our labor day special. Yeah. Saturday. Uh, we did the golden mile, the 2023 edition of the golden mile. Yes. We started at 12 o'clock at alley cat brewing in Edmonton. And we hit up 10, breweries in the span of 11 hours joey how were you feeling the next day awful (laughs) terrible it was a very fun day but also it's right in the middle of like crunch time week with the salon yeah so i i'm currently going back to school for my trade so i was at school all day i got off of school and then i like moved stuff for the salon like moved a heavy stone countertop and cabinetry and all kinds of stuff um until like 10 or 11 o'clock they went to bed then i got up and i drank for 11 hours yeah and then i wiped out on a lime scooter on the way home and then i 
got up this morning or, or sorry yesterday morning and i was very very sore yeah very sore and then we moved salon stuff for another eight hours <laughs> So it was uh, Jeez, Joey, my bod, my bod, man. But I, I just keep looking at Celine and she's just like a husk of a human being. That's and a I'm great like, way to describe my sister and your life partner. Yes. Uh, a husk. At, at the moment, she is uh, just hanging on until this salon is launched. So uh, I, I'm like, I feel like a total bag of garbage. But Celine's been doing this for like two months. So. I- she came out for for one bar. She, she did. She did. She couldn't miss the whole thing. Nope. But she had to be there for at least one. She had a delicious piece of pizza that she didn't get a good piece of pizza, but I did. It was delicious for me. Her piece was not as good. What was your highlight of the of the bar hopping of the Golden Mile? Um, you know that pizza was pretty good at El Architect. Uh, <laughs> <but> pizza was <laughs> your highlight. <laughs> it was pretty good. Uh, but you know. Uh, there's an, a brewery in Edmonton that's been around for 20 years or so called Alley Cat. And I can honestly say I've never really liked any of their beers until Saturday. They had a citrus cerveza, which was very tasty. Um, and then, yeah, I don't think I had a real bad beer the whole time. Yeah, I don't know. Those last two weren't that great. Yeah, that last place is not that great. There was one place that was a brewery called On Edge Brewing. And when you walk in on the menu, it just says, uh, beer is coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not great for a brewery. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that boded well for their staying power that they opened but had no beer. <laughs> yeah. But they had some kind of house beer that tasted like piss, and I was like, whatever, it's fine. Oh, yeah. and we got, there was one bar that wouldn't take us. <laughs> right, right, because uh, we, there were, there you got kind of fancy they're too fancy fancy. but also their entire patio was not open yeah they're the only one that closed their patio yeah so the thing with edmonton is that we have terrible air quality uh pretty much all day every day for the whole uh summer because of fires yeah because now our province isn't on fire but the northwest territories is on fire right and uh their smoke comes down they moved it they moved the fire up yeah moved the fire up to the globe yeah, and we still get the smoke. Oh, for for those listening, the Northwest Territories is a uh, province slash territory in Canada. It's not a province; it is a territory. <laughs> but they don't have a version of that. It, I guess they do. It's like the yeah. Puerto Rico. Yeah, yeah, it's like our Puerto Rico. Except for our Puerto Rico is like larger than four or five of our provinces combined. It's I like think it's larger than all of the provinces. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's like the largest single part of Canada or or like in North America. I don't know. It's gigantic. It's bigger than Texas for sure. And I think like the capital city has 15,000 people. Yeah. I'm fairly certain it's like the, it's also sparsely populated. Incredibly remote. Yeah. Polar Uh, bears. They got polar bears. They got polar bears. They have the North Pole. They do have the North Pole. You know what? Santa Santa lives lives in the Northwest Territory. You can, in Canada... At Christmas time, you can send a letter to Santa legitimately through the mail, and his postal code is we have a six digit alternating letter and postal number code. postal codes, and his is H O H O H O. Oh, I remember this. Ho ho ho. Yeah. It's fun. That is fun. You know what? <laughs> Canada did well with that one. Yeah. Good job, Canada Post. <laughs> I'm not always like pro Canada. I feel like sometimes we make shit decisions. Yeah. I listened to a, an entire uh, two-part episode of the podcast that Ariane downloaded about Jordan Peterson. Yeah. And so I'm reminded once again uh, that we have the biggest shitheads. Oh, like, yeah, the worst. The biggest shitheads. Proud Boy started up. here, too, unfortunately. Yeah. Gavin McInnes. Yeah, he's Canadian. Motherfucker. Yeah. 
as always I say, Gamut is not that great. The Proud Boys are from here. <laughs> like, yeah, the free men on the land are from here. Uh, we got a lot of bullshit. The trucker convoys from fucking uh, Canada. Uh, like, serious. <laughs> we got enough bullshit. Anyways, let's invite our guest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We are thrilled to introduce our guest. They are a singer-songwriter whose solo album, The Precure Album, is streaming everywhere right now through Ska Punk International. And they are currently on tour playing Keys with Catbite. Kamoi, 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 Kathy. Accent on Kenny. the boy. Kenny's here. <laughs> Hi. I am not here. on purpose to be annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I love us, you know, doing this thing, preparing for the future while being in the present. Yes, in the future, I am currently on tour with Catbite when this <laughs> drops. But in the past, when we're recording this, no, not yet. In a couple of days, though, I am leaving. But yeah, hi. I think, hi, when, this, I think when this drops, we'll technically see you in like two weeks. Yeah, because you're IRL. coming around my birthday. Okay. That's all. That's how I know. <laughs> yeah, so it's some, something like that. Anyway, it's pretty close. Wonderful, wonderful. Oh my god. We'll, we'll show you the sights and sounds of Edmonton, Alberta, Kenny. You'll be excited. We'll show you everything that's around the Union Hall where you're playing. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, you're. It's in the industrial area of of Edmonton. So. It's also six minutes from the very spot we're recording right now. Oh, absolutely. I'll be yeah. taking a lime scooter over there because it'll be a ten minute scoot from my house to the venue. So very exciting. Don't wipe out on it. Hey, there's a Donair place right by there, and it's really tasty. <laughs> what else is around there? There's a registry if you need to get a new license. <laughs> I think there's a subway. What? Oh, there's a subway. Oh, there's are a hotel. About, are we talking about like the trains or the sandwiches? The, the, we the do not sandwiches. have a, yeah. an underground. Well, kind of. We have a light rail system. That, that goes is, underground a little bit. Yeah, that is nowhere near where you're going to be. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the first time I actually went to Canada, when I was in Toronto, the place that I ate first place was Subway because I was in a foreign land and I didn't know what to trust. I had to be very American about it and just get me a damn Subway sandwich. It was okay. Now Chris Perez <laughs> is convinced that I love Subway and it's my oh, favorite no. thing. I'm convinced oh, no. already that you love Subway and I'm pleased to tell you you will be next to a Subway <laughs> to get your favorite sandwich. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Um, breaking, ch you need to cue this up. It's not even on there yet. You have you have to get it up there. The what? Which? What are you? What are you talking? The about? song because we have breaking news. Oh, yeah, right. I we forgot. Have breaking I news. Put the song okay. In a folder and then I forgot. To this is going to be a month old, and I need Kennethy's opinion on this. So, as of this morning, the lead singer of Smash Mouth, unfortunately, has passed away. Wait, really? R.I.P. Yes. That happened. Yes. yes. No, he I was in, not even aware. He went into hospice last night, liver failure, and this, as of this morning, he has passed away. Very important for us to talk about this for multiple reasons. Number one, we have established on this podcast that Smash Mouth rules. We yes. have established that yeah. we all love Smash Mouth. And I know that Kenny is a Smash Mouth apologist as well. So I, yeah. I think it's important that we pay him proper homage, proper tribute. Yes. Okay. This actually opens up a great thing. I have to say two things. Okay. First thing is going to be about eulogize, Steve. Yes. The first thing is about the apologism, which was, yeah, I, I've listened to Fushu Mang because I was so curious because Reed Wolcott, you know, from We Are the Union, uh, 
she says that like uh, the guitarist from that band whose name I forget is her biggest inspiration for ska rhythms. So I had to listen to that album and I was like, you know what? Yeah, this thing is actually kind of good. And the ska guitar is definitely something to be greatly admired, greatly admired. So yeah, and Padrino is uh, a great, it's a great song, great track. Goofy speaking as hell, but it's great. Of which, oh yeah, maybe speaking we speaking of which. Oh, go ahead. We have Padrino right here. We thought that this is the best way to celebrate the wonder of Smash Mouth. Yeah, not just a meme. Listen to this shit. Fucking yeah. rips. The triplet. Yes. The triplet. Greg Camp is the guitarist. That's it. Yeah. And that is the technique that Rick was referring to. The yeah. Triplet skank. They're so fast. Yeah. And the vocals in this song are great, too. Like, yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. Pour one out for the homie a month ago. Like, chills. Yeah, oh, like, yeah. like, the hair on the back of my neck went up. So good. Yeah. Okay. I have to say the second Smash Mouth thing, though. Okay. Do it. I hope this is a good story to tell in the in the eulogy, but I, yeah. I have to tell this story regardless. So this was either summer of 2008 or 2009. And, you know, I was just either about to go to college or had just been at my first semester of college. I can't remember. Yeah, probably 2009. And so some old friends from where I used to go to in grade school are like, Hey, Kenny, let's go to this thing. Let's go to this free show in Connecticut. Smash mouth is playing. It's a free outdoor show in Connecticut. So we all go and there's a bunch of opening bands and then smash mouth comes on. And it's like, you know, it's all these kids around my age, you know, like late teens to very early twenties there to see smash mouth and smash mouth is playing. What feels like a 90 minute to two hour set. And just just the second song in, everybody in the crowd starts chanting for the band, but they don't chant Smash Mouth. They chant All Star, All Star. <laughs> and it's like, oh my fucking God, you know, because I'm 19 years old, but I'm not a prick. And also I understand how shows work. They're going to play the biggest hit last. Don't be demanding them to do that. But anyway, this continues for the entirety of the show. And... I am feeling so bad for Smash Mouth at the time. <laughs> and there is a point where like, you know, somebody's like throwing bottles on the stage and um, God, you know, the singer whose name you just said, and I've been calling Steve. him Mr. Mouth. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. Steve Mouth. That's <laughs> Steve right. Mouth. Yep. Yeah. Steve, Steve Mouth. Mouth turns around with the, you know, the energy of a, a dad, like, I will turn this fucking car around right now and go home <laughs> if you don't stop throwing your shit on stage. So, Whatever. Show's going on for a long time. All these entitled kids just saying, just saying, all-star, all-star. Finally, last song in the set, Mr. Mouth, back to the audience, just shrugs and goes, Ugh, somebody wants, and then everybody loses their fucking nostalgic <laughs> minds for, you know, they're nostalgic minds. They're like in their late teens, but they're still nostalgic for like 10 years ago. And so then we all go home and then we find out that Michael Jackson died that same night. So, uh, yeah, that's my smash mouth memory. <laughs> I love the segue into Michael Jackson. 
Yeah. It's perfect. Uh, it should be noted, Steve Mouth has a complicated uh, history. He, he he probably passed away because he's a alcoholic. Yeah. Noted alcoholic. Uh, he passed away from liver failure. So it's all kind of tied. He once got drunk and did the Nazi salute. So, you know, he's got Phil Anselmo uh, vibes, unfortunately. I do uh, remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That was 2021. That was uh, when they retired. I think he decided, hey, if I'm going to go on stage, I'm going to throw around Nazi salutes when I get drunk. I should probably stop touring. It's probably a good decision. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that in North Dakota? Wasn't that like at the like at the Sturgis thing? It was at Bethel, New York. Oh, Bethel, New Bethel York. Woods Center for the Arts. I have it right in front of me. Oh, yeah. Not good. God. Anyway, Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a what a great segue. <laughs> I was passing around videos of Louis Johnson on uh freaking our Discord the other day about what a badass he is and how much I love him. And, him yeah, he slaps the bass. He was Michael Jackson's bassist in the 80s. He's the best bass player of all time, in my opinion. Michael Jackson, complicated history as well. <laughs> 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 yeah so let's uh let's we don't have to talk about smash mouth anymore we eulogized it listen to fushu <laughs> mang in in the honor of smash mouth yeah uh, kenny though catch us up since last year around this time when you last were on the pod what has been going on 12 months of kenny 2023 wow 12 months okay i'm trying to think of all the big beautiful things that have happened in my life, I mean, obviously, there's been like lots of cat bite thingies and doing all the stuffs with the, you know, doing all the stuff with the the streetlight manifesto and things like that, and all. I don't know. There's just been so much freaking stuff that's gone on. I'm not even sure what to talk about, except I will talk about, I guess, like uh, the most recent sort of things, which were the the Bad Time Records tour, which was great. I did the the summer version of that one. And that was just uh, a great, great time. And I was really, I was so glad to get to play with all those bands, you know, like there's, um, cat bite gets to open for a lot of these, uh, big type punk bands. Like, uh, what's, what's the one freaking what's one that we're about to do the bouncing souls and then like you know the (laughs) gaslight anthem and stuff like that which are these bands that are like they're big and they exist and that's not part of my world i'm kind of like you know one of these ska freaks so i'm like way more psyched to be playing with bad operation and we are the union and kill lincoln and so yeah to get to actually be with those bands and to be a part of it is such a grand experience i was relating a lot on the tour to emily who was you know playing saxophone with we are the union regularly but also doing saxophone with bad operation and occasionally doing guest spots on cat bite and kill lincoln also but like so you know they had this sort of thing where it's like wow i've been a fan of all this stuff and now i'm a part of this thing and it's a hard adjustment and i feel the same way like i still feel like i'm not really in this thing i'm just like a guest. This is like my guest spot here. And I got to make sure that I'm staying out of people's way and all this stuff. And then I would notice like, you know, Emily walking around and I think to myself, wow, they got such a big job. They're like playing in three bands and they still be doing stuff like, oh, I'm sorry. Am I in your way? I'm sorry. And then I like got to see myself reflected. And then I'm like, dang, you know, 
I don't really have that much to be sorry about, right? We all have our own things and we should like kind of prioritize whatever ourself and our needs and stuff like that, whatever. Point is, I really felt very, you know, very gifted and appreciative to be a part of all these things. And, you know, meeting all those people was such a great time. I did my first damn stage dive ever at the last show, very last show. And I had to do it because cameras were rolling and I didn't want to look like a chump for the whole documentary and does not <laughs> stage dive even once. So I I did it at the last possible opportunity, which was the last song that Kill Lincoln played. And so I went for it and I did like the most cautious stage dive ever, which it was pretty perfect. I got on there and I like made eye contact with four people like, you got me, right? Smart you move. got me, look Smart at me, move. look at me. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I dove in and it was all happening. And speaking of Emily, I could hear them screaming with delight, which is notable because Kill Lincoln is playing very loud band and I could still see, hear somebody screaming without a microphone. And that was a, that was a great fun moment. And yeah, I also just shout out to Bad Operation, shout out to D-Ray. It was very fun to uh, get to tour with another um, organ person and to talk about organ things, but also like, wow, just what a what a great human being D-Ray is, what a great human being all these people are, actually. That's that's the greatest part about doing these things. It's almost not even about the quality of the music or the shows anymore. I'm just in it for the the hang and the community. All right. Yeah, that's as much as I'll say about that. All right. Then I did the freaking K-Moy shows. Fuck. I got to yeah, talk about yeah. that. Too. <laughs> Speaking of community. So, like, it's so funny because K-Moy and, you know, the Precure album in particular has been such a, uh, a phenomenon that has, that has only existed in the digital realm and was um, born out of a frustration uh, of being locked within the digital realm for much of my life, for being somebody who was uh, introduced to the internet at the age of eight when those AOL discs were coming about. I was the child who took to being on the internet and did all this independent research about the Japanese version of Dragon Ball Z and all like the all the stuff that we weren't <laughs> mm-hmm. getting in the US yet because only the Frigasa saga had aired. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I've become a child of the internet. I get like, you know, exposed to the weirdest fucking stuff you could ever show somebody at the age of 12 on Newgrounds, which, you know, some of the uh, younger people listening to this, anybody from Gen Z is like, well, yeah, I saw my first porn when I was five years old, you know, so that's that's different, Kenny. And I'm like, yes, your mind was warped earlier. But point is, Precure album kind of comes from this thing, this... uh, this dichotomous relationship with being somebody who is firmly entrenched in the internet and owes a lot of their identity and culture to internet things, but also seeks to be a person that lives outside and lives in a real space, but kind of feels trapped and almost unable to do so, and just clinging to all of these different ways and manners to self-soothe. And so this this happens for a long time. And so the fact that like a Kimoy project even happens is also like an internet thing. But these are internet things that end up morphing into the real world because all the people who are in my band are are just people that I knew from the internet that happened to live in New York, like Evangeline, Evie Echoes, 
happens to live in New York, want to play drums. Vivi from Gutless happens to live in New York, want to play guitar. Um, Ange Capizzi, who like, you know, did the art for the K Moore shirt and like a lot of uh, Beth's uh, work. and introduce my album to a guitarist named Fretzel or Marty, who happens to live in New York, became a big fan of the album, wanted to do it. And so like that's how this stuff happened. And even like um, for these shows, uh, the other bassist that we had, who was a friend of uh, Marty's, couldn't make it because he's also like a dancer, like professionally. So we had to um, use Ian Garland. OK, that's somebody else who I just happened to know from the Internet. And. Oh, and oh, and also Daisy, ska punk Daisy, who is like, you know, keyboardist from uh, a lot of rock steady bands down in like South Carolina, formerly moved up to New York. I saw her at the show when we were in Bad Time Records show in Brooklyn. I saw her. We she introduced me to each other. We were talking in real life for the first time. And then it occurred to me, wait, I can just have her play the keyboard for this thing because I don't feel like playing the keyboard for this thing. Just because, like, you know, my, my parts are so involved, it becomes distracting. So I was like, you should play organ for us. Then we started to play organ. And Ian Garland, long time ago, was like, hey, can you want to do these freaking shows, these three shows in this fucking time frame? And I was just dragging my feet like, yeah, whatever. I don't care, whatever. I'll just come out there with an acoustic guitar. I don't fucking care. I don't give a fucking shit. And, like, I really <laughs> did not have, like, a good attitude about it. And then... um. So I had Mike Diglow at some point from Mega Infinity say unto me, hey, would Kemoy like to open for us? Kemoy the band at these places in New York? And I was like, no, I can't do that because Catbite's doing a show at the time. But then a light bulb went off in my head. I was like, wait, Kemoy the band, it would be a good idea for us to play a show. It really would. And so I was like, hey, Ian, remember those shows I was going to do solo? Let's have the band do the shows. We'll do two of them you know, band shows, and then one of them is going to be solo. So now we have a project to rehearse for. And I'm getting the band to rehearse like every week. And I am like, you know, I am, I feel like a professor, like a a teacher who's just like having to like teach the band. At first, my goal was let's get these songs good enough where they don't fall apart. Then they stopped falling apart. And I was like, okay, let's get a little more particular about the arrangements. And then we started to get into those details. And like, we had just gotten up just close enough where it's like, okay, we're sort of just prepared. And then we had to go out, do these shows first show the entire day i was just so nervous like oh god this sucks this is not going to go well this was a gigantic m- mistake what was i doing here this is horrible and then we do the first show and it actually went really really well and again it was these people merging from like from the internet pretty much like um Oxum, well, was somebody who I met on the road and they live in Oklahoma they and their partner sarah girlfriend rather live in oklahoma they flew up to freaking goddamn fucking new jersey and then drove out to goddamn fucking massachusetts to come these fucking shows because they are the canonical kemoy super fans and then like oxum just takes over my merch booth and i'm like cool glad it wasn't even part of the plan but it it all worked out so perfectly and i got to like feel this palpable like, uh, you know, this kind of family and community forming around this thing that had only existed at first in the realm of fantasy. And now it exists 
in real life. And I've become way more excited about the prospect of Kemoy playing more shows. And we got um, asked to do this thing, this Brooklyn thing, least of all studios that you may have heard of. Uh, like they were just like, hey, we heard your song Precure Love. We think you might be a good idea. I'm like, oh my God, what a great coincidence. I actually have a band now. And so like uh, when we get that scheduled, we're going to do this thing where like, you know, you go in and you record a live thing, cut live to vinyl, you sell out 18 pre-orders to people. That's a new cool goal. So hopefully Kimoy the band like gets to play more shows as the time goes by. And also shout out to Adam Davis, who I met at Fest and like really tried to like convince me that it would be a good idea to do this stuff. It was really hard for me to want to do this stuff at first. As you could hear, there was a lot of catastrophe happening in my brain because I had this idea, this projection of how these songs should sound. And obviously a live version with different musicians who aren't just clones of me are going to sound <laughs> different. And it was hard for me to let go of that. And Adam Davis was telling me, Kenny, the songs are good. They stand on their own. Just get them out there. It will be good. And so after the first show, I, when I woke up, I stood outside of the place that we were staying and I sent Adam Davis like 12 messages on Instagram, all video messages, just telling him about the show and telling him, yeah, thanks for that pep talk back at Fest. Um, you were right. You were absolutely right. So yeah, that that's as much as I'll say about that because I'm quite monologuing and I can really go off for a bit more. <laughs> yeah, you know, I gotta say that first show. Um, <clears throat> what was I doing that night? I think I I think I played a show, uh, so I got home really late, um, and I was just trying not to wake Celine up, and I was standing outside smoking a bowl, and I was on the twitters and friend of the show and friend to you and me ersatz posted like like your fir the first song of the set like right after you played it and it popped right up on my feed mm -hmm. so i was i felt like i was like really kind of able to be involved in the show even though it was such a tiny diy show but i was like so stoked for you and so stoked that it was happening and i just i just so happened that I was able to kind of follow along almost live and people were posting videos and pictures. And I think that's the only like show I've like live followed probably ever. <laughs> and it was fantastic. I loved it. We've One. learned uh, through and I think this this all kind of came about maybe even after the last appearance you had where the entire Edmonton ska scene uh, is influenced by the Precure pre album. Yeah, that's true. Paint Bomb and Nina both said that that was like their uh, kickoff points as to getting them to start bands. Saw a guy on the train in a Paint Bomb shirt the other day. Yeah. Well, so I, I think like it's it's weird to say that the Precure album is because it's a an online it, it it evolved from an online sort of starting point. It has spread in a way that it's like entered into pockets of the universe that aren't just regional to where you live because it's online more people have accessed it from more places and are influenced by it. They think it's great. <laughs> like, I think that's something to be proud of. Uh, does it, um, because you've done live stuff and you're touring with cat bite, uh, what does this mean for the future of Kamoy outside of just, uh, just more live shows? Well, boy, that's, that's kind of hard to, say but it's also easy to say so what it means for the future of it is pretty much the same thing like i'm really still attached to the idea of doing 
all these albums and projects by myself. I'm attached to it, but it's not to say that that conception won't change. Maybe I really will record live stuff on some of the things that I projected to do by myself. Um, what I mean by that is like, I've had this idea in my head of like the albums that I'm going to do and they're all going to be like this. And then once I finally record that album, which is probably like the fifth one in my discography and it's going to be like, this is when that's the last one. And then all the other ones will have like all live instrumentation and it won't be me just doing like, you know, program drums and playing absolutely everything. But then I wonder, you know, because it takes me so long to do everything, which I'm not uh, in some ways, I'm, you know, in some ways that's a bad thing. In some ways, it's also a good thing. I appreciate the fact that I'm very detail oriented, but, you know, these things can hold me back in the way I'm like, wow, well, I really just like not release that al last album until I'm like 40, though. Come on. Like, I really got to get this shit going. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm not sure what it means and i do work on my own things when i get the time i remember like last time i did this i was probably like still recording the the cover album which was just like to be my buffer album while i am writing other songs and i have been writing other songs and i do have like a lot in the tank but like again these are things that i do not want to debut at all until they are recorded because I am that type of person. So yeah, you're not going to hear any like future Kemoi originals until they've actually like been recorded. And I honestly think because the cover album is taking so long, I might make it take extra long. I might like just finish recording it and then I'm going to do the next uh, thing, which is all the original material. And then I'll be like, okay, now I have both these things recorded. Bam, here's the cover album. There you go. And then one week later, here's this thing, because I didn't want you to wait a long fucking time. And all I give you is an album of covers like that was supposed to be a buffer. It wasn't even supposed to take this long. Um, you don't want yeah. a 99 songs of a revolution. It. Oh, yeah, boy. And I, it won't be 99 songs either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> I was planning on doing like two of those maximum, <laughs> maybe 18 songs of Revolution. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think uh, prolific uh, songwriting is going to play very heavily into the game at the end of the episode. So keep that in your mind. Uh, but let's talk about okay. the, yeah, you don't know what it means. <laughs> cool. it's, it's foreshadowing. <laughs> we uh, should talk about the, Band of the day. This is Toasters Part Two. So we're going to talk about the middle three records of their category uh, catalog: New York Fever, Dub Fifty Six, Hard Band, Fadead slash Two Tone Army, depending on which version you have. Uh, so talk to me, Kenny, about this era of the Toasters. What are you excited to talk about? Where does this land in your oeuvre of Toasters appreciation? Well, one, there's a helicopter. I can hear that right now, but. Two, this is the best. This is the best era. This is the best one. Uh, my favorite Toasters album is New York Fever. And like, you know, the other top three are the other two ones that we're going to be talking about. Like, this is the best and most influential era to me specifically as like, as a ska musician, as a way to conceptualize like, how, how do drums go? 
How do you play like the organ? How do you play the bass? It's all in here. And when we get into detail to talking about these albums and like maybe like previewing specific songs, I will talk about all the little specific ways that this organ playing has baked its way into my particular approach to how ska organ should sound. And I was like hearing so much of um, what I do from these albums because like uh, Hate Five Six released a video of Catbite performing in Philadelphia on July and I'm in that video. And so I watched that whole thing. And then I was listening to, I think, uh, Hard Band for Dead the same day. And I was like, wow, yeah, the way that I play organ for Catbite is just so toasters. It really is. So, yeah. I love it. And I know me and you talk a lot about the individual instrumental uh, prowess of the band members, especially during this era. So we'll have a lot to talk about. But I would encourage the listeners, if you haven't heard it before, Toasters Part 1 with Kimoy is uh, up and running from last year. Give that a listen before you listen to this. But to catch you up, previously on CPS. Oh, we got to enter the time, Scott Sheen. Yeah. Yeah, we got to do that whole thing. Here we go. I forgot to enter the machine. It's been a while. Yeah. All right. So the what, what do you got there? I see some socks. <laughs> I, was told, I was just showing off my Sonic the Hedgehog socks. Okay. <laughs> see, check it out. Do they make you go fast? Uh, they kind of do, actually. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, I also have, I have flowers on my face. Painted them on. <laughs> Anyways, let's keep going. <laughs> You're looking beautiful. Thank you. Uh, so the sources I had for today's uh, episode were Wikipedia, Discogs, All Music, but bulk of what I pulled from was the book Hell of a Hat, uh, which details a lot of the rise of ska music in the 90s. And so toasters play pretty heavily because there's a lot of talk about moon ska and a bunch of other stuff in there. Good book. I recommend people listen or listen to it on audiobook or read it. It's a good one. Good catch. Good catch. Almost got it. Previously on CPSE, the Toasters were formed by English expat Robert Bucket Hingley in New York City in 1980 in order to bring his two-tone ska to the U.S. Made up of local musicians and members of the comic book shop Forbidden Planet, Bucket essentially taught the other members how to play ska. Eventually, they met up with new waiver Joe Jackson, who helped the band record Recriminations, uh, which was their first EP and had a heavy new wave influence. Major labels were not interested in the band, so Bucket formed his own, Moonska, in order to release local New York music. The first Toasters album, Ska Boom, was released in 1987 on Celluloid Records and featured an 11-piece lineup. Celluloid was quick to get the band back in the studio for the 1988 album Thrill Me Up, but the label folded shortly after. Moon was highly prolific and released albums by the New York Citizens, the Busters, and the Dancehall Crashers. They also released the Toaster's 1990 album, This Gun for Hire, which had a more laid-back approach. So the time Scott sheet takes us now to a brand new decade for the Toaster's, 1990. The band's lineup is starting to take hold with Matt Mells and John McCain, no relation, holding fast on bass and drums, with Dave Barry joining full-time on the piano and keys. Fred Reeder was on sax, Brian the Sledge, which is a great name, uh, on the trumpet, Joined with horn arrangements continuing to be produced by E-Man Strockman on the trombone. It is close to being their most stable lineup. Toasting, the toasting is now being handled by Pablo D with additional vocals by Cashew Miles. They all have the most New York nicknames ever. 
Cashew? The, cashew, yeah. Cashew. Well, the main guy's bucket. We do. There's nothing. Cashew. Yeah. And if, if I remember from the Mephiscopheles episode, they all had crazy names too, the Mephiscopheles yeah. folk. Um, I don't know. It was in New York. You just had a nick. Well, the, the slackers all had <laughs> nicknames too. Like, it's Kimoy, new, new- you need to come up with wacky nicknames for all your band members. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, <laughs> that's a good point, I guess. <laughs> you have to. Yeah. I feel like Kimoy is already a pretty New York name, especially because I'm always like telling people, no, 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 you got, you got to have the accent on the second syllable, you know? You know, it's like hamburgers, hot dogs, you know? <laughs> Kimoy. Kimoy. right? Kimoy. Yeah, yeah. It feels New York when you say it that way. Definitely. Like you have to flick your chin while you say it. Hey, you know? Kimoy. Kimoy show, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. It wasn't all that bad, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we got a cup of coal. This gun for hire was a misguided attempt at getting a major label and a radio single, but it failed to leave its mark. Moonska, however, continued to thrive. The dancehall crashers pr- proved to have regional popularity, and fresh signs by Let's Go Bowling and High School Sweethearts, the Scofflaws, helped establish Moon as a traditional edge label in competition with the punk and funk of the West Coast. In 92, the band got a glimpse of a big break after being booked on a regional television series, followed by the release of their fourth album. New York Fever, that also featured mixes by old friend Joe Jackson. The album was a return to the frantic ska that composed their earlier material. Let's talk about New York Fever by playing the first track. Yeah, that's pretty much a banger of a start. I know. It's amazing. Like... (laughs) Just giving her. Yeah. Like, what a high energy song. And it's the first song. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Yeah, um, it's so good. <laughs> Even that toasting is just like so fast and cool. And Pablo D on their bucket for the first time. Um, I like that, like. In uh, yeah, it was good. when I listen back to these records, um, you know, you think of Bucket in the Toasters, but the reality is, uh, he only sings in like half the songs more often than not. Yeah, usually it's gets true. his like fellow toaster to do a lot of the vocals, and I think that those are the standout songs. Personally, I yeah. like New York Fever. What I a agree. song! Yeah, it is. It is great. Um, there's a there's a live video that you can see from this era. I think like 1993 at where they're performing at Max's Kansas city, this specific lineup with that specific singer. And it's really great. Um, and also I got to shout out Dave Barry on the keys for this one. Like uh, the organ solo on that song in particular is like one of the sickest organ solos in the entire freaking genre. It's absolutely amazing. Dave Barry kills it on the keys and like, you know, the, the toasters, they just make in this entire lineup, they make the absolute most of the three horns that they got. I mean, sometimes there are like, especially on dub 56, there will be like some overdubs, like a baritone sax comes in there sometimes. But on this album, it's just like these three horns. They're making the most out of those voicings. Like, God, it's just, it's incredible. And 
they're such great players. Like this is like the height of New York jazz cat excellence but it's like the cool version of jazz cats and like when i say that like i was talking i was talking with the kmoy band before before like how i much i appreciate them because they have the right spirit they have the right vibe and i was so worried that you know to get people to play my songs i would have to get these disinterested jazz cats who can play everything but they don't like my weirdo music and so that's what's so great about like you know, the Toasters at this time or Mephiscopheles at this time, New York Scott Jazz Ensemble at this time is that they were all like these very learned musicians, but they also were really invested in this very fun kind of populist, maybe like, you know, might be seen as like kind of dumb music to like some of the other jazz people, but they understand that this music is very fun and it is very immediate and energetic and poppy, but it can also have the intricacies of jazz arrangements and jazz playing. And yeah, so, you know, you got, you got Matt Malls on the bass. Like it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And Dave Perry on the keys, whatever. I can go off even more. There's like even more keyboard greatness to come on like the next two albums. So I guess I'll get into that more. Well, well he goes crazy at one point. He does. Yeah, he totally <laughs> does. <laughs> Yeah, Matt Mel's uh, bass playing is definitely like that. That line that's in New York Fever, the do 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 do, like that's one of my go tos if I'm like practicing bass. It's just to do shit like that. Like it's a lot of fun, and you can play fast when you do it that way. You don't have to like scale the whole neck. You can just go nuts in like two frets. It's fun. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I really liked uh, as I was listening to it. I kind of had to keep reminding myself that this is like 1992. Right. for how good the album sounds like it's just re- what a clean it's so cleanly recorded without breaking that barrier into like going into like a really studioy poppy cleanness you know what i mean like it it really has like a enough of an edge that it's still got some grit to it but it's like every note is just ah, crystal clear it's great fantastic engineering by this point uh it's all in house like they're not doing the that makes sense yeah well joe jackson did the mix but aside from that everything like it was all produced by bucket and it was all in-house at moon ska yeah like at this point like moon is taking kind of control of all of the toasters kind of stuff but i think the mix because it changes in the next couple albums Mm -hmm. like i almost think that joe jackson's mixes are a little too 80s still and i think when he is removed from the picture i like the mixes sounding better in the next couple records you are right. There is like a bit of that that eighties thing. There is there's a lingering eightiesness from like the years of like nineteen ninety to nineteen ninety two in totally. a lot of albums. It was it was that didn't even the first time that ever occurred to me was actually I was in like this after school high school band, okay, and we covered a Fishbone song, Sunless Saturday, and so I had everybody in the band like have to listen to Fishbone, and the person who was playing drums was like commenting on like how the drums sounded so early 90s because they had this kind of lingering reverb thing like you know how like the drums in the 80s were like reverberated and then as the 90s came in you're starting to dial back on that just a little bit but still not all the way there and i never noticed that before but ever since then when i listened to the reality my surroundings i'm like wow yeah that is there and then once i go i know i'm talking about fishbone but then when you get to like the 1993 album give a monkey brain and he'll swear he's the center of the universe 
the drums and the whole production starts to sound a lot more natural and like yeah everybody was just i don't know so much production was dictated by popular trends at the time it's so weird to think about now because now nobody really i mean people do give a fuck about trends but also we're just we have so much cultural awareness of like the past and being like i'm gonna make an album that sounds like you know uh 1988 in like a big professional studio where i'm gonna make an album that sounds like 1986 but it's recorded on four track i'm gonna make an album that sounds like 1968 and it's made in jamaica and it's mono you know so like everybody's <laughs> like looking into the past for like certain things and they're also like looking into the present and whatever so yeah. when are people going to be nostalgic for the 2000s and people are going to put like Max Martin, uh, Dr. Luke Lasers in ska music. Like, I think that's what we're missing. Can't wait. Uh, probably going to happen right after you said that. <laughs> Somebody's going <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Not that I like to invoke Dr. Luke uh, <laughs> at all, but... Uh, the lasers, though. Lasers, yeah. He, he said after that Katy Perry or Kesha, one of the two, because he produced both those albums. Yeah. And he said, uh, yeah, he says it's all about the lasers. How are you going to have a hit single without fucking lasers? That's <laughs> stuck with me ever since. And I'm like, that's such a great late aughts quote. <laughs> right. But yeah, uh, I do want to say one thing that, yeah. you know, all these albums that we're going to talk about, they have a very similar probably like the exact same, maybe even level of musicianship and like competency. And I think that these are albums that you have to listen to if you want to understand like how to make ska music. I think that these are great albums at understanding the, what I would like, what I would call the two-tone style, or maybe you'd even call it post two-tone, but it's that stuff that's clearly very influenced by what the specials and the selector were doing. And then that made its way onto bands like the Toasters and, you know, like, I don't know, Planet Smashers. It's, um, you know, divorced from the original kind of uh, ska drumming style into a thing that's a little more influenced by the punk movement and reggae. But yeah, and then we have I'm just saying, these are things to study if you want to learn how to do that. You don't only have to study old records. You could also study Bad Operation, Self-Titled, or Cat Bite, Nice One. Those are also great albums for that sort of thing. But I'm just saying, these are albums to appreciate. Even if you don't like the songs or you don't like the toasters, this, I feel like these are just great albums for you to study if you want to understand like how bass playing should go, how a rhythm guitar should go. But anyway, saying all that, New York Fever is my favorite one of this batch because I think it does have like the best songs, the best songwriting overall. Interesting. Yeah, especially, you know, something like Social Security to me is just a great classic toaster song and Plowshares into Guns and New York Fever. I just really like those Kids, songs let's play, in particular. I have Plowshares, but I have the version, uh, the one at the end of the album. Let's the listen version. to that. Okay. <laughs> Wanted to mix it up a little bit. Yeah. And I do like that you picked the other song that you picked because I have a comment to make about it. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> These are also like kind of the bigger songs about Tears into Guns, New York Fever. Just that like driving like piano skank thing going on is so like just high energy. Just everything is like all the rhythms are pushing and it's not 
yeah, th- this whole album it really like goes at the tempo. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's really pushing the upper boundary of the tempo they're playing at all times. I feel yeah. like Dave, Dave Barry not a, afraid to be a piano guy. Yeah, he doesn't always have to do organ. Yeah, there's there's stuff that I do take from. Well, at least when we get into hard band for dead, I think it becomes a lot more obvious. But yeah, I'll tell you something. I never listen to this one, like the version. Sometimes I think oh, yeah. I don't really like uh, Pablo's like uh, chat style. So like I never like listen to Pablo Shabin well, or com- that one. Compared to who comes next, yeah, like <laughs> yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, I always, I just think toasting makes the toasters for sure. Like, I just love the songs with more, with more toasting, more mixed vocals. Sometimes I think the, the strictly bucket songs don't necessarily stick with me as much. It partially because like, I'm sure we'll get more into it. He is a C plus lyricist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's not what you come for. It's not what you come for. It's, uh. It is not. Sometimes what he'll say for. some things that you're just like that. Don't Joey mentioned in the chat recently. He's like, uh, he gives off some boomer energy a little bit. Yeah, yeah, pretty. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it. He gives off boomer energy while while being like a contemporary. You know, it's like yeah. okay, yeah. who's making music in the '80s? It is boomers, and you still right. feel like a boomer to the other boomers. You know what I mean? Totally. <laughs> he's like he's like a a junior Gen Xer, elder boomer. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's just on the cusp, <laughs> on the cusp. Uh, the other song I have is Shabine. So I might as well play that. Oh yeah. So this song, I, I picked it up right away as soon as the horns start playing. Uh, is a very recognizable horn line. That, is it yeah, now? They crib it, they lifted crib it pretty, pretty aggressively, hard. yeah. Um, here it comes, I believe. Oh, no, that's after the sax. This, this is the, um, um, you know, live from New York City. This is Saturday night live <laughs> sax, pretty night much. Live, yeah. <laughs> but then, so I, I heard this one and I was like, wow. There it is. Oh, yeah. Lowrider, baby. Yeah, it's Lowrider. That's yeah. absolutely yeah. Lowrider. And then about four or five songs later in the album, there's a guitar solo that just steals a whole different chunk of Lowrider. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, this, um, what, maybe Lowrider was easier to pay for. Than, I'm just I'm just thinking about this because they wrote. Remember, Matt Davis was like Bucket's fake. James Bond thing where he's like I'm gonna do James Bond sound alike but for this yeah. one it's like Lowrider I want the horn line from Lowrider uh, let's just do it and <laughs> is, is War credited I never actually read like I had the CD back in my parents house I never actually cracked it open to see if like they're credited in this song <laughs> yeah but it, it's just it's funny to me that they put the, together this album and just War had such a huge influence on them that it came up twice <laughs> you know what I mean? For two different musicians in the band, or two different parts of the band altogether, very yeah different. Maybe, but no. to your point, could be a cheap song like "Sweet Home Alabama," which is famously an inexpensive song. Really? That's why it's in so many movies. Yeah. Oh, like "Hey Hey Jude" is another. Like Beatles are famously expensive, but "Hey Jude" is like exceptionally it's cheap. The cheapo. It's I gotta for- do that. That's a good game. 
I'm gonna that save this for like game. the oh, the cheapest yeah. the cheapest songs for like movie soundtracks for copyright. But I know "Sweet Home Alabama" is like famously a cheap song, which is why you hear it and everything. And yeah. the yeah, the toasters also they cover that later in I think what 2002, right? <laughs> yeah, on, Did you, on one "Sweet of the Home Alabama." Album. Yeah, they call it Sweet Hometown Jamaica. It's not great. I, I don't even right. like Sweet Home Alabama that much. But anyway. <laughs> Is that on One More Bullet? Oh, it's the one Is before that. that. Oh, okay. I can't remember. Enemy the of post- the System. Enemy, those two records. Uh, <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about them today. We're talking about the good stuff today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't have to talk about those last two records and how I feel about them and how the toasters let me down in the 2000s. <laughs> uh do we have any last minute thoughts about New York fever that you want to share, Kenny? Yes, I do want to say, I'm talking about the first song again, that snare drum is like a starter pistol. It's just so great. Like, honestly, the song New York fever, if you're a person who is who enjoys running around at super fast speeds, that's a great song to put on. I love that <laughs> shit. It makes me feel like Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, so... Yeah, and also like that is an odd one, honestly, for the toasters because like they usually don't play that fast, and they play that song really fast. And also, Shabin, we were just talking about it. Yeah, that's Lowrider, and it's I think it's been a concert staple for them ever since the release of this album. I think they always do Shabin. So yeah, yeah, that's I don't fun. think they played when when we opened for the toaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun to say. It, it like is that. fun to say, but it's like the dumbest, not true thing ever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't believe they played Shabin there. They played a lot of just, we'll we'll go through it, but most of the songs I queued up on the next two records, basically they played them all. Yeah. Plus, Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down, because you got to play that song. Of course. And Running Right Through the World. Um, but I think now's a perfect time for us to take a quick break. And when we get back to Welcome back to Checkered Past. We're here with Kimoy, and we're talking about the Toasters. We just finished talking about 1992's New York Fever, and we move into 1993. Regional ska was becoming bigger and bigger, with classical ska, with classic ska groups, the Scatolites and Bad Manners, finding traction, including a show dubbed Scalapalooza, that also invited up the Toasters, as well as fellow East Coasters, the Skunks, and Ruder Than You, if you're familiar. The sellout show prompted the first U.S. ska package tour with the toasters joined by Special Beat, Scatolites, and Selector, effectively bridging the gap between all three waves of ska in one fell swoop. The old school ska hits on Moon Ska just kept coming with Memphis Scoffleys and Hepcat issuing their debuts in 93 and 94. The timing worked as both Bucket and Joe Gittleman of the Boss Tones were featured in a Billboard article praising the rise of ska in the underground. Lineup changes also occurred with Cooley Ranks joining to take over the toasts and Rick Faulkner taking the trombone seat. This would mean that the nearly every member of the Toasters was also a member of the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble. This all-star lineup would release the whiz-bang Vegas-style Ska of Dub 56 in 1994, helping kick Ska up into the public consciousness. Let's talk about it by playing Mona. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of Cooley ranks. Good God. This album is so fucking good. It's incredible. So this is 
my favorite Toasters record. You I think it, it is Thanks no for... skips. Oh, uh, the bass. Yeah. He's on one. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, you know, Matt Matt Maltz had such great bass lines the last record and steps it up like way more with this one. Like, gets a lot more adventurous with it. I mean, everybody actually gets a lot more adventurous on this one. There's kind of like a very, I guess, what was I going to say? A conservativeness to like the way that they played on New York Fever. And with this one, they just really kind of go for it. It has like a lot more of a live, energetic feeling. That's nice. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And also, that, that in. Chills. So good. Chills. Like, come on. Anybody, if, if you play organ, mm, that's, you yeah. can just do that. You know that? You could just yeah. go like, I'm just going to hold this one note. Just do it. It's great. It sounds great. I do it. Everybody does it. You got to do it. I was going to say, you know who else told us about that on a recent episode? Esteban, who's yeah. also a big single note holder, thinks that that sounds dope as hell. Hell yeah. I agree. It's it a it's a trick. It's not just a trick. It's solid for songwriting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. Uh, yeah. Dub fifty six is uh, because I think Cooley ranks is the secret sauce. Not just him, but who's the the, the new trombone player? Also, I feel like Rick Faulkner. Uh, I think Cooley, Cooley's it, toasting yeah. is on another level. Yeah. Like in comparison to Pablo's. Oh yeah. hundred oh, percent. Like oh yeah. Like it's uh, like as soon as. I don't know. I, I didn't really know a lot of the history of the toasters, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I'd even. Uh, I definitely heard all of Two Tone Army. I'll, I'll talk about it when we get there. Uh, but I haven't really listened to these two albums so much. And this one, like, I liked New York Fever, but when this one came on, like, with all the coolie in it, and it's like got a little more dubby and it's a little more jazzy. And I, yeah, this is my favorite of these three as well, I would say. Yeah. There's a lot more finger uh, popping. Mm, that yeah. is like. That's honestly so, so valid. When I said New York Fever is the best, I'm not like, oh, it's the best hands down. I'm like, you know, it for me, these are very like, you know, neck and neck sort of albums for me. So oh, for it totally sure. makes sense. And um, right. Yeah. Like speaking of like, you know, Pablo Shabin and like, oh, I never listened to that one. I just listened to the other one. Here's something with Dub 56. I never listened to the song Dub 56. I listened to Dub 56 chat mix because that shit is so fucking epic. It's goddamn amazing. Cooley is amazing on that track. And also, uh, it's it's um, the it's mixed in just a little bit of a way to like get out some of the guitar leads. Like there's not as much yes. guitar leads and you can hear the bass line way clearer. It's one of the greatest fucking bass lines in the entirety of ska. Oh my God. Yeah. Dub 56 chat mix. Yo, if you haven't heard that, come on. Oh, oh, they, they're going to hear it in just a second. They're going to hear it right now. Yeah. Like, come on. I had to. It had to. This is like, and he's at rapid, the toasts are rapid fire. Like, I can't believe he's taking breaths. Also, like that, you know, he's also an original reward. Yeah. Man, it's so good. Original 
This song is not on the original, well, Dub 56 is, but the chat mix is not on the original CD album. Okay. You have to get it on the double CD version, or the record, it's on the record. ridiculous that's great this is also bringing to mind something else so if you if you listen to that you know you can hear a, a baritone sax playing the skank just like you know following the root of the chord and playing that skank doing that little honking low thing and like you know that that harkens back to traditional ska when the horns would like play the skank too but that never happened in traditional ska because they didn't have berry saxes and it usually be like multiple horns doing it so i'm beginning to wonder like who actually started that thing where it's like oh let's just have the baritone sax honk along with it was it the toasters was the toasters in this lineup was it like could it oh i think it would be the scofflaws no didn't the scofflaws have a berry because they did have a berry too yeah i'm just trying to like cop some New York Pride and say, yeah, we invented oh, it was, that shit. It was a type New York thing. band for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, without a doubt, that was a New York thing. Yeah. I mean, I know because even Angelo it. played a tenor. He didn't play the baritone. Oh, so, no. Angelo yeah. played all type of saxes. Like, Angelo had all these different saxes, even on, um, like, I'm thinking of the song contemporaneous to this, actually. Um, come on, Unyielding Conditioning. He plays a baritone sax on that song, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, at the end of the song, they do have, like, the horns honking along with the skank, but it is all three of them, not just, like, the berry. So, yeah, that was the thing I was thinking about. But, yeah, even ben- Angelo would, like, play a fucking bass saxophone because he's fucking ridiculous. Like, <laughs> on, on Lemon Meringue, he plays a bass saxophone. It eventually got to the point where, like, in Chim Chim's Badass Revenge type era where uh, Chris Dowd is gone, it's just, okay, we have a trumpet. And then Angelo would come out playing a fucking bass saxophone. So you have the absolute high end of the horn spectrum, the absolute low end. Sometimes it sounded not good and sometimes it sounded good. But more fishbone facts from K-Moy on something that's not about fishbone. That's okay. I like 90s fishbone is too metal for me. (laughs) I've said it before. I I wonder if, though, that's the same. Like, Angelo was just doing the same thing that they that guitarists did when 2000 rolled around and they were just like, but can we go lower? Yeah. But, but what if we went lower? Yeah. Yeah. And they just kept doing that every album. (laughs) And then gent was invented. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, and then then they were like, Oh no, the zeros sound like someone shitting their pants and not like sounds anymore. (laughs) Dang. Yeah. Yeah, Invented by Larry gent. Um, Larry. Everybody's named Larry in my world. Wait, okay, we were talking about the toasters. Yeah, yeah, this is a great album. I I think I also want to talk about, so, you know, the first version of this that I got was when Megalith was doing the re-release with the live discs and, like, the extra tracks. And so yes. the live disc from this is so, so beautiful, um, particularly just for me to like listen to the bass playing is amazing there uh the live version of thrill me up matt's bass line on that is so great if you listen to the bass line that i wrote for uh, the k song since 1989 the, so much of it 
comes from how Matt Miles uh, formulated that baseline for the live version of Thrill Me Up. Like, just listen for it. I think you'll hear it. I think it's good because that's also a rare, uh, you know, live recording of Cooley Ranks. We don't get a lot of that um, because he was only around for a short while. He wasn't in the band for that long. Uh, he had a, a, his own band, The Pilfers, that he was uh, became more fond of doing stuff with. And they're much different, <laughs> much different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have one more song from Dub 56 queued up, and it's Marlboro Man, which is a instrumental. Oh, yeah. I think I come in on a solo. Oh, beautiful. So good. <laughs> Do you think that's Lester Sterling on the saxophone? Because that sounds like an alto to me. And I know he does it. And I know time. Lester Sterling was big on the next one but I think he may have joined on this one too let me see so good what a wild solo yeah I mean According to this, I think that's still Fred Reader. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Fred, you know, who went on to be in New York Ska Jazz Ensemble, this, you listen to this, it's like, this is the beginning of New York Ska Jazz Ensemble. Songs like this and uh, the other instrumental off this, which was um, Night in Tunisia, a Dizzy Gillespie tune. Yeah, that's New York Ska Jazz Ensemble beginning right there. Uh, so Lester Sterling on this record played sax on Mona, the pre- the Mona that we played earlier, and Sweet Cherie. And also dancing, right? I think he does the solo on dancing. Like, uh, Cooley, like, calls him out, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, just maybe the, the th- I'm on Discogs, my favorite place to see who does what on what. And it's a little all over the place. Some of it is showing up and some of it's not. But, uh, yeah, I know Lester Sterling. Of the Scatolites, kind of got hooked up a lot with this band. Oh, no, here we go. Okay, this one does say Lester Sterling indeed did the sax solo on Marlboro Man and on Dancing. Okay, cool, cool. Nailed it, Kamoy. Yeah. Nice. That's a great song. What else do we want to say about Dub 56? Um... I don't know. Anybody want to uh, address the elephant of the in the room of the weird uh, song about like uh, uh, trying to resist s- sex with underage girls? Um, I don't want to, but uh, <laughs> you absolutely can if you'd like to. I just um, have to say it because somebody yeah. might be listening and be like, "Okay, somebody's got to talk about that." Again, we don't come for the lyrics. <laughs> You know, I don't know if I was listening close enough to the lyrics to really pick up on that one, and I'm kind of disappointed in myself. Yeah, um, it's a it's a one four five song. I think it might have been only on the deluxe version. Maybe like, does the original version just end with um, uh, "Midnight Hour"? Do you no, know? it ends with "Goody Goody." Okay, yeah. yeah. So yeah, "Goody Goody." I was I was listening to that song the other day, and I think for the first time in my life, it kind of occurred to me that. That might have just been an instrumental jam that they did, and then like Cooley laid down some lyrics for it. So yeah, it's a song about 
um, underage girls coming up to Cooley ranks in like the green room or whatever and him being like, no, thank you. We cannot have sex. Not yet. Wait a couple <laughs> years yet. and or months. And so. Ew. That, that, yeah. that, that song exists. I'm, I'm just saying that song exists. And on a related note, I was sitting on my porch the other day. No, not my porch. Sorry. I'm not going to say porch. I'm not going to adapt other people's thing. I'm going to be a real New Yorker and say I was sitting on the stoop the other day. Stoop. And so, yeah. I was going to say balcony. Yeah. Okay. I was sitting on the sitting on the damn stoop and I was reading a damn book and I see this guy walk by and he's wearing a shirt and it's an anti-flag shirt. And I'm like, does he Mm, know? Cool. Does he not know? (laughs) That's a good question. Like, why are you wearing that, man? Um, I almost called him out, but I guess I wasn't in the mood for it. But I was about to be like, hey, do you know? Like, that's bold. It's bold to be wearing (laughs) that. Yeah, you should hang that up for a, a little while at least. You know what, though? I uh, When we were just on our little pub crawl thing uh, a couple of days ago, a friend of ours showed up and he he loves music, but he kind of just doesn't pay attention to anything that's going on in news or whatever. And I mentioned, I, I think I made some joke about anti-flag and he was like, what happened with them? And I was like, oh boy. Yeah. And I had to explain <laughs> it to him. But So maybe there's just, you know, mid-30s guys who loved anti-flag 10 years ago still yeah. rocking their anti-flag shirts who have no fucking clue who yeah. knows or and maybe they did. just like that old gun star and they don't even know anything about it it's just like people wear the cross with the slash through it they're like oh sweet a cross with a slash through it <laughs> look yeah. at that monster <laughs> and by the looks of him he did look to be a mid-30s guy so yeah yeah it's likely it he may he maybe really didn't know you know maybe he who just knows? hey maybe he loves chris dose He's I'm just like, saying, he just loves Chris Dose. He's like, that singer cannot get behind yeah. But Chris Dose has been working hard, yeah. and I refuse to put away my anti-flag shirt because yeah. that is a this, good bass player. This is for Chris and nobody else. Yeah. Uh, he was uh, cool. I like the bass player. Nice, nice guy. Yeah, I, I, I think we've said on a, an episode since everything went down that we really hope to uh, hear Chris Dose do something more because he fucking rips. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Let's uh let's move back into the old time scoshine. Uh Moon picked up yet some more big releases, including the Pie Tasters debut in 1995 and the Slackers debut in 1996. Slackers. The Pie Tasters became sour as all hell and tried to ditch to burgeoning ska rockabilly slash crust punk label Hellcat. The band accused Moon of ditching out on royalties when Moon offered to show their records. Pie Tasters found out that the records were just files stacked in a garage. The Slackers, on the other hand, had this to say. Here's a rare Vic quote. The simplest, worst deal possible was from Moon. We were like, cool, we're going to get ripped off. We'd rather make a record than not. We took it for face value. When Hellcat came along and offered us something, Moon suddenly tried to keep us. We were like, hey, you never did anything for us, so why would you want to keep us? From what I gather, you could give a shit whether we were alive or dead. So let us go to a label that gives a shit about us. The deals got more and more complex as the label was getting bigger and bigger, which inevitably was what began spelling disaster and alienating artists. Add to this that in 1995, the toasters were being courted by major label Mercury, who already had the mighty, mighty boss tones. The biggest problem was that Moon was supposed to be part of this deal as well. So Mercury was going to try to absorb Moon along with the toasters. Right. 
And with the old relationship with Celluloid still fresh in their memories, they just couldn't take the plunge and backed out, relegating Moon as a feeder label and the Toasters as an underground sensation. Enter 1996 when the next album was ready. The aptly named Hard Band for Dead had an identical lineup to the previous uh, with Scofflaw's bassist and slacker collaborator Victor Rice on the boards. It continued the band's hard-driving, fast-paced ska and garnered their first true hit, Two-Tone Army, that would get a video on rotation and is the theme song to Nickelodeon's Kablam. Interesting side note, Steve Schaefer was the production manager for Moon in the 90s, and he's the primary source for Hell of a Hat. He is also the founder of the blog Duff Guide to Ska and was the first place that the Interrupters controversy was broken. Really? Yeah, just a tie bow on all this. Yeah. And let's kick off and talk about the aforementioned Two-Tone Army. This is much more of a guitar album than the last two. Yeah. yeah. This horn line, though, is like super classic. It, an incredibly classic. Like, I just cannot be mad at this song. It's no. so good. <laughs> Again, another Matt Mel's doing the do 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 do. I love yep. that. Yeah, that's. That's like his classic thing, is just yeah. to outline the triad of the chord, which is a very effective thing to do. Also, this, I'm going to say the bass line, if you're not like a great bass player, is actually pretty hard to play because he's playing those notes staccato. So you've got to like yeah. really nail that. And those are also hard to do. Every time I do it, I always play like bass way more legato so it's hard to do that especially at this speed me too um does he say skater pants yes what year is this story 96 so that would have been what like dickie's shorts or <laughs> i'm just trying to like, probably what era of skater pants are we talking about here yeah skater pants. i don't know uh and 60s suits it's so funny i'm not sure he knows what he's talking about yeah the, the, <laughs> yeah he he's totally just being he is being like the ultimate boomer here it is yeah. part of the, it skater pants like he must be he's like a solid 10 years older than every band you know what i mean like yeah and he is, but he is like the elder statesman of New York ska. And so he's got to be there. And he's like, yeah. oh, you kids wearing your skater pants. <laughs> yeah. He, I don't know. There's. But he's English. There's, yeah. there's <laughs> a lot of that stuff here. I will say there's like the, the boomerism of Bucket also informs the musicality of the toasters. Like mm-hmm. there is a thing. Where the toasters, if they weren't this amazing ska band with an amazing rhythm section and these great horn arrangements, they would just like be a bar blues band a lot of the time. Like these yeah. dudes yeah. sound like, you know, just like these guys who like play in a bar band type of songs. Like it, they all have that. Not they all do, but a good number of them do. And this song is kind of included in that. But also, yeah, it's a great amazing horn line so there are so many well not so many i guess but like this particular horn line is one of those like that's like wow this is so good it's hard to believe that somebody actually wrote this it's just like this perfectly cool catchy blues kind of lick and it's yeah it's an absolutely great thing love it three of the best horn 
players in New York are playing. So, you know, it, it is a benefit to having just like at this point, these two albums, Dub 56 and Hard Band for Dead are such perfect lineups of talented musicians, which is what Bucket was always about about having the best players. The Slackers were like that too. Mephiscopheles mm-hmm. was like that, which is why their horn players hated everybody in the band. <laughs> <laughs> was because it was like, yeah, we have to have the best. And we have access to the best. Right. So we might as well bring them along, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And Sledge. Can I, I just want to say Sledge is just like such a great trumpet player. Even if you watch any live videos, he is fucking incredible also. And it's just... Like part of his talent, like this is, you know, you, you can play solos, you can do the thing, but it's also just hard as a trumpet player to be able to actually hit the high notes consistently and live too. And I just watch like videos of the toasters from this era and he is always on and he's great. And like, you know, um, Chris, drummer from Catbite, has often said that he has a bias against trumpet players in ska bands because of how rare it is for somebody to be consistently good at that instrument and how, you know, you can, it's easy if you're not great to just fuck up a lot, to just fuck up a lot live. And so it's great to have horn trumpet players in particular who are dead on. Yeah. Just want to say, very rare. I, I agree. Yeah, trumpet is the um, the joke instrument for a ska band, but I wouldn't consider the trumpet like the classic ska horn. I would I would put the saxophone way above a yeah. trumpet. Yeah. Um, and I would say like, yeah, what? Who else do you got out there? You got uh, the guy from the Mad Caddies, who's not in the band anymore, but he was like maybe one of the top uh, in terms of that being just consistent and high high performing. But yeah, trumpets are hard to find. A good trumpet player is hard to find. I've been on like a Herb Alpert kick for like two months. I've just been listening to his like. How's his trumpet? He's pretty good at trumpet. He's pretty good. Okay. He's pretty good at it. <laughs> I, I gotta say, particularly the two albums that he did with. I cannot remember the name of the other trumpet player. He's from South Africa. He's a difficult to pronounce name for me, but he, he did a an album where it was a studio album together together. And then they did an album, a live album together. And that live album is like the hottest, wildest fucking jazz funk trumpet record. It's, it's out of control. It's so fucking good. I'm going to look up what it's called because everyone should listen to it. And while you're doing that, yeah. would you mind queuing up? I wasn't going to call you anyway. Oh my God. A song who's, yes, they will refuse to stop playing live. <laughs> even though, I mean, it's a great written song, but he drops West Germany in 96. Mm. <laughs> Not great. Uh, yeah, main event live. Her, uh, Herb Albert and Hugh Masakila. Main event live, 1978. It's fucking wild, dude. Listen to it. about as close to like ska punk as i think the toasters would get yeah that and uh, the next album yeah yeah. uh yeah i know the next album more (laughs) oh my god who's jj oh i think it's johnson who's that guy (laughs) 
<laughs> Who's Jack Johnson? Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson. Joe Jackson. Jackson. Oh, maybe it is Joe Jackson. Or maybe my good friend JJ is Joe Jackson. It is. What, it a, is. what a name drop. Here's, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. So. Okay. I was in the van with Cat Bright, but not only was it Cat Bright, it was also Rick Johnson uh, from, hmm. you know, formerly of Mustard Plug and, you know, does sound for Andrew. I'm not going to say their old name, AJJ, Jeff Rosenstock, all, all them people, right? Yeah. He was telling me that that's who the name drop is. Just like my good oh. friend JJ says, that's about Joe is Jackson. That's Joe Jackson. It comes right. from apparently like, it's it's a reference to a line from a Joe Jackson song. So, um, but yeah, I do want to say something about that song in particular. The organ playing in that song is is just so fantastic it's very outside of the box so if you are a ska organ player a lot of the time you're thinking i'm going to play the rhythm i'm going to play the skank i'm going to play the bubble i'm going to do like these different chops over here and stuff like that that song has this whole outside the box thinking with like this melodic build to it it's like the organ understands that it is a different tone it doesn't need to continue to hold down the rhythm like the guitar is because that's the guitar's job in this thing so there will be parts where the organ like starts playing pads and you can like hear with the pad at least i can you know switches the chorus off leslie on slow for like the second time we get to that um you know that that melody that kind of goes like i lost your number your address that kind of thing the second verse of that it's like the slower thing it's this proggy thing that like the only other uh, organ I hear did that in ska was like on the Slow Gherkin album. I also have to say, this was the first Toasters album I ever listened to. It was Hard Band for Dead. So mm, it- Mine too, because of Two-Tone Army, yeah. It, it, um, it embedded its way into my skin in terms of like how I conceptualize organ playing and- I remember when I was 14 years old, I'd been playing the piano for two years and I was starting to actually lose passion for it and started to just like kind of get bored about it. And it was a great coincidence that I discovered Scott at the same time. and was like, oh, so like keyboards are a big part of this genre. And it just like put another fire inside of me where this is something that I could seek to do. And so we were talking about New York Scott Jazz Ensemble last time. And so, hey, guess who's on board this time? We got Victor Rice on the board. Okay. But we also have Carrie Brown uh, playing the boards, playing keyboards along with Dave Barry. So there are some songs that feature Carrie Brown, who is a founding member of the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble. And there are some tracks that feature Dave Barry. Now here comes some more self-doxing, I guess. Um, <laughs> Carrie Brown is What's somebody who I oh, know okay. personally. I'm going to leave oh. this whole story for you right now. This Ooh, whole thing, I'm going to tell you all about it. You can dox me, find out where I went to high school. It's fucking fine. I don't care anymore. But anyway, so <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, our chorus had this teacher well, not not a teacher, but somebody who was the piano accompanist, and his name was Mr. Brown. And so, you know, Mr. Brown just plays the thing at the place, whatever. And after school, well, like during lunch period one day, I'm done with lunch. I go over to like play one of the pianos in school, like during, you know, lunch period. And I'm playing a Scottalite song 
on the keyboard. I think it was either Guns of Navarone or it was Eastern Standard Time. And then Mr. Brown walks in and he's like, hey, were you just playing the Scatolites? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, because like I think I'm in trouble. And he says, yeah, I was I was in that band, actually. I play the keyboard. I'm like, what the fuck? He's like, what? what? <laughs> and like, I'm like, and he's like, and he's like, no, 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 stay there. I'm just going to go and play the bass line with you. And so we like played Guns of Navarone together and he's playing the bass with me. I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck is happening? And so I go home and I research this guy <laughs> and I like find out, wait, not, he, he played on Ska Vuvi, which I own. Uh, he played on Low Blow by New York Ska Jazz Ensemble, which I own. He played on uh, Hard Band for Dead, which I own. This guy is fucking incredible. Holy shit. And so I come up with a plot to ingratiate myself to him. So he's like he's ple- teaching a private lesson during like after school hours one day. And there is another room adjacent to that private lesson room with pianos in it. So I go in there and I start playing a... Uh, a song that he wrote for New York Ska Jazz Ensemble on the second album called Blue Lunar Ska. I start playing that thing and he comes over in there and he's like, hey, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a lesson in the other room. You can't do that. But also, that's my song. Holy shit. And um, so, yeah, I, 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 I knew Carrie Brown personally. And so after like we did this, um, the Hate 5-6 video with, uh, you know, Cat Bite, I was like, wow. A lot of my playing still comes from like some of that stuff that it was either Carrie or Dave Barry, but like both of them pretty influential to me on that album, Hard Band for Dead, made their way into the way that I still play organ with Catbite right now, where like, you know, I do think of it as this instrument that breathes and can provide all these different textures instead of like purely just rhythm playing. And um, and that kind of comes from these players in the New York scene who, you know, they did have ska influences, but they were also like, you know, they, they were like these jazz heads, these prog rock heads. I know that Carrie Brown is like, you know, big prog rock fan. So had like a lot of that influence with his playing too. And I had to show him the video be like, Hey, Carrie, I just want to be like, Hey, uh, thanks for like all that you ever showed me like directly or indirectly, Way back then, I'm actually doing Ska Organ Live now. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I haven't been doing Ska for a while, but I'm going to be doing like a New York Ska Jazz Ensemble show in New York later this year. And luckily, I can actually make that show. So, yeah, that's going to be fucking fun for me. So, yeah, I just want to say that. Full circle. What a full circle event that is. Yeah, wild. Um, I have a question <clears throat> about uh, the album title. I don't know if you explained the distinction between Two Tone Army slash Hard Band for Dead. Oh, yeah. Well, so so Hard Band for Dead is the 96 title. That's the original title of what it is, which is based on the Prince Buster song Hard Man for Dead, which yeah. is covered on the record. Yeah. Um, then they reissued it uh, in 2012, I want to say, with Dub 56, which I bought those records. Uh, I want to say it was on Jump Up, maybe, or Megalith, one of the two. It was Megalith. And, I mean, it could have been yeah, both, but I know that yeah. it was released on Megalith. And I might have gotten it through Jump Up because Chuck Wren always finds a way to issue stuff like or like get that stuff out to Canada. So, um, And they renamed it Two-Tone Army to sort of make it more accessible. Easy, accessible. Yeah, because yeah. everyone knows that song. Right. And then they added a whole other set of songs after it, including, which Kenny, I wonder if you've heard this, 
the instrumental version of Two Tone Army, the special forces uh, mix. Oh yeah, yeah I, I think I actually might have listened to it on Spotify one time. I maybe it, is that the one that's like it kind of sounds like it was from Kablam. Is that the one? <laughs> A little bit. It's all. It's all. It's all toasting. Yeah. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, and I, I think it is as close to the Kablam version as you're going to get. <laughs> and then there's also like a blues version. Oh, yeah. At the very, very end of the CD, which is weird. Or yeah. whatever Spotify playlist, whatever you want to call it. But the toasters have done this before. like, And they did it recently, too, because Pool Shark is uh, kabo- like Ska Boom, but with just like a different um, like song order. Yeah, but it's essentially the same record. Oh, okay. um, but they renamed it again just to make your life confusing. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, Ska Boom, the last song I have queued up is their reworking of Talk is Cheap, which is the second track. So good. Uh, I like the reworkings that they've done on the last few. Like um, they redid Razor Cut on the last one. They did Pool Shark, the reprise on New York Fever, which is incredible. They picked the right songs to redo and make more 90s. Yeah. There's a the technique in this thing, I, I take it. I take it for some of my K Moy songs. Um There's one in the future that's gonna be way more obvious, but there's some sprinklings of this in the pre-cure album where like you hear that piano, right? It's just slamming along with the snare. Yep. That was like a thing that I got from this band. It's like, okay, organ plays like the hype skanks, and then you have the piano just slamming along with the snare. Yeah. And that's another live favorite. All three of the songs that we've played here, pretty much guaranteed to hear uh, from the Toasters live, which are, they're not as common. The Toasters don't play live as much because Bucket's in a different state uh, and only oh. goes out once in a while. Um, but uh, yeah. State or country? Toasters live. No, he's in San Antonio. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just for a for a British New York guy spends a lot of time in San Antonio. Yeah, I okay. I was I was just flashing back to like an interview with that I read with him so long ago, like it might have been ten or fifteen years ago where he was living in Spain at the time. So yeah. That also sounds like something he would do. Kind of like when Victor Rice moved to uh Brazil. Yeah, but Brazil he's he he's was. been there. Victor Rice yeah. has stayed in Brazil ever since he decided to dip from New York just a, a bit after 9-11. Yeah, so uh, I, that's about all for this record. Any last thoughts, Kenny, before we wrap up for the day? Uh, yeah, everybody, I mean, if we're not going to play the track, everybody has to listen to the song Dave Goes Crazy. because oh, Dave, Dave Goes Crazy is incredible. Dave Barry happens to go crazy on the piano. <laughs> and it's like, it's like one of the best things that happens i don't even know the lore behind the song but i don't know I, I just like to think that maybe like bucket went home early one day and then like dave and matt and i guess like fred Ryder were just oh and who who's on the drums was john mccain still there at the time john mccain yeah, he's still in there this yeah. was before he died <laughs> i'm joking <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so you know john mccain hopped in on the drums and you know they're just playing this thing and it's dave barry doing his arrangement of a uh, flight of the bumblebee and it it sounds fucking awesome it's just one of the coolest things you'll ever hear any piano player do scott or otherwise and also i want to talk about um so you know i know from 
in person and also on the internet. Why am I, you know, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, you know, control this. The the guy from Florida plays tenor sax, was in like uh, the toasters in like the mid 2000s. God, for some reason, I'm blanking Jeff. on his uh, Jeff Ritchie. Jeff yeah. Ritchie. So Jeff Ritchie like told me that, you know, Matt Miles played a five string. We all know that. But he also told me that, oh, not only did he play a five string, he also had it tuned down a half step. So oh. that's fucking insane. Like you have that extra string for the low B. Now it's a low B flat. So, yeah, that's just another fun fact about what a great bass player he was and how I also went on Discogs to try to look up uh, Matt Mollis and be like, hey, does guy ever do anything else? And it's like, yeah, like one other record kind of. But it seems that he's disappeared off the face of music, which to me is to me is pretty sad because, you know, Again, I keep saying this, but like for my own writing and playing in particular, like top influence of bass playing when it comes to ska music. Yeah. Ready to play a game? Yes. Yes. I am ready. Are you ready for sure? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're ready. All right, I gotta I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta do this thing. thing. Yeah, no, this the embarrassing part. There's a new trend going around. These cats keep making tunes all over the town. Take your own sister, buy it for sister. Take your own system, buy it for a pound. Make a thousand beats and a million sounds. They're making eight-bit songs, acoustic tracks, emo rap, and comic hacks. It's a lifestyle that's hard to behold. Make as many tracks and your hard drive can hold. Two-tone discography. <laughs> This tr- this is called two tone discography, <laughs> two ton discography. I fucked it up twice. Wow! All right. In this game, Joey and Kenny will be given an artist or musician that is insanely prolific, and I'll give them a bit of a bio. They'll each take turns guessing how how prolific they are. Okay. Price is Right style. So mostly it's how many albums they've put out. Okay. Yeah. So uh, how many albums they're on, or how many albums they've released? They have released. Okay. Right. And so it's it starts at one end and then goes to another. You'll you'll see you'll you'll see how this goes. So whoever and it's so closest without getting over also. Okay. So obviously one is on the table. But be a good sport. Don't do it. There's only two of you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I get it. Is there a buzzing in kind of rule thing? No. Okay. Everybody does it. We're gonna go Joey and then Kenny each time. Or no, I'll mix it up. Yeah. Joey, Kenny, Kenny, Joey. Yeah. So that it's different each time. Yeah. Cool. Makes sense. Wonderful. Okay. First one. King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, only active for a decade or so, but does at least an album a year in whatever heavy guitar style they feel like playing. Joey, how many albums by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? I will say 14. 14, says Joey. Kenny is counting off the records on their hand. I'm interested to see this. I'm going to say, oh, it had to be closest without going over. Well, then Correct. I could just easily say, oh, the answer is 20, even though it's not. It's higher than that. But yeah, it's 24. So Kenny gets the point. Woo! That's a lot of records. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's great lot. that I didn't try to guess accurately because I was almost going to say <laughs> 25. But yeah. Oh, that would have been a smidge over. Yeah. I really like that latest one. It's very oh, good. It's so good. Yeah. My favorite one yet. It was the OCs. Metal. Yeah. The OCs, spelled however way you feel like it. Garage rock band that started in the aughts and has released on average two albums a year. 
Kamoy, you first. Kamoy, Kamoy, Kamoy. Oh my god. I'm gonna say the OCs have 26 albums. I don't know them all that well. Sorry. Okay. Joey? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go slightly higher, I think. I am going to go with. 29 albums. They have released 26 albums. Oh, wow. And <laughs> I got it exactly. So that's two points. I'm sorry. They, oh, they deserve, yeah, they yeah. deserve two points for that. That's sure. incredible. Yeah. Wow. Are we are we fans? OCs? They're great. You know, every time I hear an OCs song, I'm like, this is fantastic. But I've never like actually. So like the effort into listening. Garage rock psychedelic type deal. Is that who they are? Yeah, and yeah. a little, little punky. They, they get a little punky. Yeah. They're very Fiddler adjacent. That's maybe a little bit like less like angry. That I should get into. I just haven't yet. But you know, mm-hmm. that is kind of like what I like about King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. I love how they. I feel like King Gizzard is like if Rush met uh, the Stooges. It's like garage rock, but also proggy at the same time. And yeah. Love it. Yeah. So they yeah. Do, so King Gizzard does the psychedelic prog metal thing. They're a little heavier. Mm-hmm. Say the OCs are not as heavy, but play a little faster. So it's, I guess it depends if you like it a little, yeah. a little more punk rock or a little bit more metal. Okay, That's kind of cool. how you get it. And they're both insanely prolific. James Brown, the godfather of soul, who nearly had an album for every year of his life. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, Joey, you're first. Holy smokes. Uh, 42. 42, says El Hoey. Kennethy. Ah, uh, you know, Joey, I don't want to be fucking lame and just be like, 43, because that's cheap <laughs> as fuck. So I'm, I'm going to say something wilder and be like, 51. Whoa. James Brown had 63 albums Holy to his name. Holy shit. Again, the clue was he had an album for almost every year of his life. Yeah, I should have went way higher. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think uh, he was short by five, I think is what it was. By the way, are, are you class, are you um, counting posthumous releases with these? I am indeed. Mm. Oh, okay. Yes. Good to know, good to know. Yeah, that will come up with some of these people. For sure. <laughs> I bet. Robert Pollard, indie jangler that fronted Guided by Voices and has been pumping out cool kid soft rock since 83 Solo plus guided by voices. Ah, That's important. Together. How much would uh, that be? Who's the first guest? Me? Son of a uh, bitch. No, uh, okay. okay. <laughs> Son of a... Yeah, I don't know this yeah. one either. I, I wish I was a... I honestly do wish I was a bigger fan because it almost sounds like that music is something that I should be into. I haven't been able to get into it. It's so boring. I feel like it lacks... <laughs> I feel like it lacks sincerity. That's my big thing with Guided by Voices. It feels so much like pastiche and tribute, and I feel like it lacks sincerity. Um, but I could be wrong. I keep trying to do it. Every couple of years, I try to give him another shot, and it doesn't stick. Anyway, Robert Pollard, that motherfucker, has released mm-hmm. 38 albums. 38. Uh, I'm going to go higher. I am going to go with 55. You got it, Joey, because Robert Pollard has released 68 albums, 22 wow. solo, and 46 underguided by voices. What a I feel like they're fucking, just going up. What a dickhead. I'm sorry. That's a shit. Why am I shitting on Robert Pollard so much? Um, 
Well, because he's released nearly 70 records and you haven't been able to get into one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably why <laughs> I, I know there's, there's a, somebody follows me on the Twitter. Uh, somebody on Scott Twitter actually has a, a name named after a guided by voices song, hardcore UFOs. I think this person might actually be in a band, maybe Poindexter. I'm not sure, but yeah. Well, they may have been on the podcast then. <laughs> uh, real angry. If you are right listening now. to me, hardcore UFOs, please tell me. Yeah, and I'm, also tell I'm, me. Which do, one? Do you think which... that Guided by Voices is like doing fake British accents? Because when I listen to that song, I just feel like, wow, these guys are like doing their, uh, you know, doing their Ziggy Stardust era David Bowie impression. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> which is Wesley what some Willis. people think of me. That's what some Gen Xers think of me. They're like, hey, hey, you nice makeup. You ever heard of David Bowie? Do you know about him? You should. He's really cool. I'm like, yes, I'm, 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 not, I'm not that young. I do know about David Bowie. Um, yeah. <laughs> not even young people know who David Bowie is. Yeah, like, I mean, there's some people who are just famous. prolific. That's like, oh, these kids these days, they don't know about the Beatles. It's like, yeah, the kids know about the Beatles. Don't you, be fucking you know don't about be, Beatles. Don't be an asshole. Like, that's just intentionally being an asshole. If you've been on Twitter or on TikTok, you know there are still some teenagers and early 20s people who have a big hyperfixation with the Beatles. So, yeah, that does keep continuing. Wesley Willis, outsider artist, punk rocker, and illustrator that really whips the llama's ass. God, Wesley Willis is so fun. Punk rock McDonald's is so fun. Um, rock and roll. The numbers McDonald's. seem to be going up. I'm going to say 72. 72, says Joseph Woods. Uh, okay. Checkered past the Scott. I'm going to go with the number that was in my head, which was actually 82. Wow. <laughs> Kenny, why would you do that? Uh-oh. It's 80. Joey. Oh. Ah, nice one, Joey. Wesley Willis. Yeah. Also featured on MC Lars and variety of other things. Wesley Willis. Wesley Willis was probably when I was like, when I moved out on my own and like I moved in with a bunch of friends who had, we basically had a gigantic music collection because all of us brought our music into the house. And my one friend who had been stealing music off of the internet for years and years and years introduced us to Wesley Willis. And I was, that was, that was the beginning of me embarking down my journey of weird music every now and then. Cause that was the weirdest music I'd probably heard at that point in my life. Yeah. You get some Daniel Johnston after that. You get a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird nineties, two thousands music. Yeah. Sun Ra jazz pianist and composer who released so much material that people actually lost count what is the consensus because they know actually don't know <laughs> wow how many albums sun Ra released there's a consensus as to how many kenny we'll start with you i'm exhausted <laughs> <laughs> there's still quite a few more <laughs> 97 97 albums 97 albums it's a good year. Good year. 97. Good year. I like it. Good year for Scott. You know, I'm just going to I'm going to undercut you a little bit and I'm going to go with 93 albums. The the consensus is 100. Well, of course awesome. they just went with a round number. Of course they did. Of course they just they were like <laughs> they eh, said 100 100 albums in 1000 songs. Sunra. That's wild. Also, when you're gonna say Frank Zappa, I keep just saying Frank Zappa, the oh, psychedelic rock legend, wanted to make more music than he could possibly release, and he j did just that. As tons of material was released after his death, Kenny, do you have a guess? Okay, 
So Frank Zappa is somebody who I'm actually quite a fan of. And I know that in his own lifetime, I think it was about 40 or 45 albums. And then since then, there have been so many posthumous releases. And you have to think about all the live albums and also the Beat the Boots compilations, which were just like bootlegs that he self-released um, just to make like money off the bootlegs. And then there's been all the Zappa family How trust shit that's been coming out. Um, I actually, I love the Zappa family trust stuff. I love the hot rats collection, and funky nothingness, good stuff. Uh, you know, but anyway, what's the actual number? I know that we keep climbing up and that's making me exhausted. I want to pretend that it's something lower. So I'm just going to say, Oh, the real number is 86 albums. 86 albums, says Kimoy. I'm going to go 115. Damn it, you did it again. (laughs) 111. God damn it. 111 is the number. (laughs) Uh, Next up, John Zorn. 69. Nice-year-old sax dude. That also did grindcore at one point. <laughs> and I am not kidding. So do you know who John Zorn is? You know I, I am familiar John with Zorn who John Zorn is. plays yeah. the saxophone like a, like the absolute like he escaped from a lunatic asylum with a, with a saxophone. Yes. And he is also the most normcore looking person. But every time I hear a John Zorn song, he's on one. And yes, he attempted to do grind at one point. And it's an insane listen. Do you it's attempt to, to do grind or do you just grind? No, he attempted. <laughs> <laughs> no napalm death is John Zorn. <laughs> uh, I think you're up first there, Joseph. John Zorn. 111. 111, <laughs> says Joseph Woods. Kenny, what's your guess on sax maniac John Zorn? Joey, I want you mm-hmm. to get this one. <laughs> I'm going to guess... <laughs> 11, 11 albums. Joey did get that one because he released 352 albums. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's wild. He just needs to put up four more. Yeah. There's one for every day. That's not a four more. Year. It's, not, it's uh, not a four more. <laughs> Buckethead. The Hat and Mast Wonder is only 54. And this is how many albums he's put out. Kenny Buckethead. Oh he plays God. the Git Box. 54, huh? Uh, he he has uh, released 108 albums. Joey, 108 is the guest from Kenny. Uh, well, seeing as the number keeps seeming to go up, and Zorn's was what was it 300 and 352, 352, and I know Buckethead. I've like he's had years where he's put out like eight or ten records because he just literally will mash his guitar to like a drum track. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna shoot for. 375. You get this one because it's 435. Wow. Buckethead. All right, we got three more, and these next three are fun. <laughs> Viper. He's a rapper. Oh, God. He basically invented cloud rap. That's true. Even though people who don't smoke crack are cowards, because that's the name of one of his albums. <laughs> his goal is to reach a million songs. That's his goal? His goal is to release a million songs. He probably has mm. released an album since I put this number together. What do you <laughs> approximate is the amount of albums that he has released up to this point in his quest to release a million songs? Wow. Who is it, Joey? Is it you? Is it me first? Yeah, yeah I'll, I believe I'll, so. I'll just say it is. Uh, 
holy shit, a million songs, man. 469. Nope, 420. Nice, nice number. Nice. 420. 420, says Joey, on brand. Kenny? One thing I will say, Viper is correct. We don't smoke crack because we are afraid of it. So I'm sure that it is because in some level we are cowards. Yes, I'm afraid afraid of smoking crack. You may label me a coward for that decision. Anyway, um, yeah, 469. Fine. I'll do that one. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, The the correct answer is 1,500. Holy shit. 1,500 albums. So he He is one of the most prolific artists of all time. Okay, but like... I like I I guess he's got it. He has to be making money off this. This has to be his full time gig, right? Yes. He also has claimed he's the second coming of Christ. Oh, that's great. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was Donald J. Trump. Uh, yeah, Viper has also made the same claim. Mm, weird. Uh, he is a <laughs> he's a notably strange person. There's a no, good number of people. Record, I am going to show you what he is up to, <laughs> and it is bananas. Anyway, Not something if. If there was a way that we could keep track of this, even though there isn't, I would like to actually, it would be a fun game to guess how many people throughout history have claimed to be the second coming of Christ, because there are quite a lot. I can tell you that I was one of them, uh, took too many <laughs> mushrooms one time, and that was what I was convinced of. So <laughs> there's got, I'm not the only person who's had that experience. So there's got to be at I mean, least the, like 2 million. Yeah. And, and it's only in like, 2023 years yeah right because you could only be a second coming of christ well you're after the 2023 first minus 32 okay right. so yeah. nineteen. You, you have to wait for him to die first before you can claim to be the second I mean, coming he, he, the, the second one could have come after jesus was born yeah, the first I guess so. second coming of christ uh guy to claim he was the second coming of christ was christ because because he came again <laughs> you know and he was like hey yeah, what's up that, guys it's true <laughs> it's like i'm back <laughs> Gotta go, peace. Yeah, that was a weird <laughs> bit from the from the Bible. He was like, "Hey, hey, I'm back. Um, I'm gone though. I just wanted to say I can do this trick. By the way, the thing yeah. where I come back, but I- I'm not staying long. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. The greatest trick that Jesus ever pulled was convincing the world he came back. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that saying goes, I right? Think so, George Philip Telemann, the Guinness World Record holder of most prolific classical composer of all time. How many pieces did he supposedly write? Because they didn't have albums when he was composing music. Right. <laughs> and who has the first guess this time? Oh, uh, Kenny. So you actually said 1,100 the other time, which is pretty good because I was actually going to guess something within the 1,000s range. I'm gonna, Actually, I'll, I'll guess 2,001. What a great year. It. What a space odyssey that was. Yeah. Yeah. I will go 1,902. That is an interesting guess. <laughs> the answer is 3,000. Oh, 3,000. Telemann has composed 3,000 classical pieces. And this is the last one. And this one is the most interesting and most fascinating to me. And I'll never be uninterested in this person. Matt Farley. A musician so prolific, he legitimately lost count of the amount of albums and songs he's done. He himself has lost count. He is still alive. I'm not doing albums because he will just release random songs also. Right. So, can you approximate 
and this is his guess. This is Matt Farley's guess. How many songs Matt Farley uh-huh. has recorded? And his songs, by the way, I should mention what kind of music he does. He sits at a piano and he writes about random shit, including farts, butt cheeks, uh, and towns that people will send to him on social media. Oh, he's a, he's the the write about my town guy. Yes. Okay, I have a pretty good. Who told us about that? Me. Is, Probably. No, I'm no, obsessed so, with him. Someone at SBI Fest <laughs> oh, was yeah. telling us about it. I yeah. believe. Same guy. He he. So he makes. This is his full time job. He makes something like twenty grand a month. Wow. A month from his Sp- Spotify streams. Oh, that's wild. Because yeah. because and he has said this. He writes songs knowing that kids will shout the names of his songs. At their Alexa or or Siri or whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Alexa, play farts. And he has a song called Farts. 100%. That is very funny and very smart. Yeah. Not an idiot. No. So, Joey, can you guess how many songs Holy shit. this person has written and recorded? Um, well, it has to be like a bananas number of songs. I'm going to go with... 7,200 songs. 7,200 songs, guesses Joseph Woods. Okay. First thing, down the hatch. First thing I'm going to say is I was about to be like, oh, does he record these in a van down by the river? Because it just sounds like somebody combined Chris Farley and Matt Foley into one person. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, not a van down by the river. Not when you're making $20,000 a fucking month, is it? Jesus Christ. Um, a really nice van by a really nice yeah, river on a really river. nice piece of land. Really. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to guess 4,002. The correct answer is 24,000 songs. Joey, you got that it. That is insane. Kenny is still the winner. Oh, you, you, you doubled me my but, points practically. But yes, 24,000 songs. He has bands with names like Moe's Haven. He has a band called The Big Heist. He has a band called The Toilet Bowl Cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> he has a band called The Very Nice Interesting Singer Man. <laughs> this yeah. guy's got a good sense of humor. <laughs> I, I feel like this, he's this got dude. a band called The Strange Man Who Sings About Dead Animals. <laughs> 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 Just what a guy. <laughs> Anyway, thanks, Kenny, for playing this game with us. I had a good time. (laughs) Let's hand it over to you. Thanks for being on CPSC for the third time. Three, Pete, what have you got to plug? What have I got to plug? Uh, I I don't know. Uh, Yeah, Catbite is doing a big-ass motherfucking tour. And um, I don't know. The BMFT? Everything, everything I have to plug, I can't even plug because, like, you know, I had these shirts made for, like, Kemoy. But all the shirts that I had made were just like specific sizes that people told me they wanted on the internet. So here's how you know that my shirt order is very specific. I ordered 57 shirts. And like as soon as I get them, I'm going to bother people like, hey, you on Twitter, you want like a a double XL, right? You did, right? Okay, I'm going to ship it to you and stuff like that. So I can't even plug that. That's just for specific people. And um. I, I got nothing. Kmoy still exists. Kmoy will continue to do more music. Hopefully, I will attract and or alienate some fans by making music that does not sound what like what people are used to. But hopefully, yeah. Okay, that's all. <laughs> 
Awesome. And we look forward to it. And you're a perennial favorite. Again, this will be a this will be a favorite. Everyone loves it when Kenny's on the pod. It's true. Thanks for listening to Checkered Past. Hit us up on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok at Checkered Past Pod or send us an email at checkeredpasspod at gmail.com. To support the pod and get bonus content, including a full-length and unedited video of this episode, including Kenny's wonderful shirt, sign up for our Checkerhead Patreon at patreon.com slash checkeredpast. We also have merch available at checkeredpast.ca. Checkered Past is edited by Ariane and engineered by Joey. That's me. And our Scott associate producer is Chris Reeves of Scott Punk International. And until next time, I'm Rob. And I'm Joey. In more words of the toasters. Oh, shit. I forgot to write something. Hey, Kenny, what's your favorite uh, toasters lyric? What? Oh, damn. What? Uh, burning police cars down on the street. Come on, boys. Do some East Side Beat. Perfect. Hey, that's a good one. Nice. <laughs> Yay, we did it.